Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. This program is about growing closer to Jesus Christ and His church through the study of Scripture. And as we've been doing this for the last four years, our focus has been in many ways emphasizing that the Bible alone isn't sufficient. It is inspired. It's divine. It has been given to us as a part of the wider sacred tradition that we've received from Jesus to his apostles, handed down through their successors, protected by the Holy Spirit, guided and preserved in the midst of a time in the early church when there were hundreds of other conflicting documents claiming to be often authentic, to have another voice, sometimes even giving us a different picture of Jesus. It was the early days of the church. Many books were accepted and denied, but then at the end of the fourth century, we see the bishops gathered in council determining which books are to guide us, which books can be uh, trustworthy, which books are authoritative, which of these mostly letters should be read in mass. That was the bottom line issue. And so out of that came the canon of the Bible that we have today. But it was always to be taken as a part of the tradition of the church. And we're going to look at that. The reason I give that introduction is because that's in many ways the theme of of our guests' discussion today. Uh, I just scratched the surface. But the guests that I've invited to join us today as a previous guest from the Journey Home program, Guy Dowd. He, uh, I'll read just a little bit of his bio, which you can find on the deepinscripture.com website. Guy Dowd came home to the Roman Catholic Church in 2006 after serving 30 years as a Protestant pastor. In addition to pastoring, Guy also was a school teacher and in 1986 received the National Teacher of the Year Award from President Ronald Reagan. So he's been involved in front of people delivering truth for a long time. Since 1986, Guy has spoken to groups all over the world, and since coming home to the Catholic Church, he has shared his journey home with many church groups. He is in the process of finishing a book dealing with his journey. And uh, Guy also has a website. If you go to the deepinscripture.com website, there's a link, and you can click to his website, even as I'm doing now, just to see uh, what kinds of things are there, because Guy has done a lot of things. Actually, most of his speaking that he does now is to uh, teachers groups, educational groups. Uh, you know, he, he's there to motivate people to uh, use their gifts, to dream dreams, and to, and to, uh, to utilize all that God has given you. So you can go to his website, find out more about what Guy does. Also at the Deep in Scripture website, you can find out about a bunch of things for the Coming Home Network International. You can even watch this program live uh, now on the internet. But mostly, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a question about the program, if you have a comment, we can, we'll try and answer it during the program or even afterwards. We'll do the best we can to always respond to you. Our phone number is 800-664-5110. You can also call us at the regular Coming Home Network International phone number, 740-450-1175. Or you can send me an email at Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at deepinscripture.com. Now, the, the thrust of this program for a long time has been to ask the guests to choose a verse they never saw, some scripture that awakened them to the beauty of the fullness of the truth. And Guy chose three passages, and 
when I looked at the selection, uh, I was kind of excited to see these because these are, for me, these are my three favorites. And it's always good to recognize how the Holy Spirit uses the same passages of Scripture to awaken people to the fullness of the truth. His passages, which are are written out on the website, in case you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, and then 1 Corinthians 11, 2. Now, I'll read these, and we'll take a break. Guy will join us. But as I read them, I want you to listen. What is the underlying theme of these passages? And what is so unique about what Paul was writing in these passages to these Christians that underlies the significance and the importance of the church. First, let me read 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. Paul's writing to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, 2, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN your global Catholic radio network. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and uh, before I invite Guy Dow to join us, I just want to remind you that this coming Monday night on the Journey Home program, my guest will be Becky Mayhew. She's sharing her journey into the church. And you really want to hear this story because uh, Becky, who was the wife of, a, of an academic scholar, uh, very uh, well-informed, but came from a very, very conservative Protestant background that uh, it was difficult for her once she started to explore and to discover the Catholic faith, it was difficult for her for many reasons, but one of which is that every person she had ever known not only was non-Catholic, but didn't like the church. And so she felt that in her journey, 
she would be leaving behind every support system she had ever had. And so that's this Monday night on the journey home, 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. The guest will be Becky Mayhew. All right, Guy, how are you doing? You said you survived the uh, the winter up there in, in the northern hindering lands, right? We actually had a pretty mild winter for Minnesota. Only six foot of snow? <laughs> we didn't even have to put the little orange balls on top of the... Uh, antennas on the car so you can <laughs> see over the snowbank. <laughs> well, that's good. Is the snow gone? It's all gone. Oh, yeah. okay. I'm sitting looking out at lake and uh, the ice is melting on the lake as well and so but as as of yesterday there were still uh, fish houses out on the lake. Okay, <laughs> well they might be a little precarious going out there but I mean Minnesota's one of those states where I know that one of the most difficult things to decide is whether you take your Christmas ornaments down or not, because the snow comes <laughs> right again very soon, right? That's true. All right. Well, listen, Guy, it's great to have you back on on uh, an EWTN program, uh, and I want to remind the audience that Guy was on the journey home a couple years ago, and that at, uh, archived program is available on EWTN if you want to hear his whole story. But, Guy, you know you chose passages which are my favorites and so i love to hear someone else's perspective on this but you served as a protestant minister for a mess of years right that's right for 30 years marcus uh, started out as a youth pastor and then another pastor and i started a community church non-denominational and and then i ended up pastoring an evangelical free church so uh, my experience sounds like uh, Becky Mayhew's uh, yeah. in many ways. I very, very uh, a conservative Protestant pastor. Didn't uh, uh, know many Catholics uh, that I respected. Um, I didn't have anything good to say about the Catholic Church. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's kind of a miracle that I found the the way home to Rome. Yeah, that's a miracle, and it, it's even a miracle. And we're going to look at these passages, but what? The miracle is, as you just described, you're a youth minister and you and somebody else went out and just started a church. And that is such a modern idea. What really started getting to me was when uh, three of the churches that I was involved with all went through church splits. And as a result of these splits, uh, other churches formed and they went through splits. And that's probably why we have over 20-some thousand different churches today. Yeah. Yeah, but to me, the... I look back, you know, I was a Protestant for 40 years and a pastor of that for 10. And and what amazes me is that in the time of history that you and I live in the Protestant world, it really didn't cross our mind that there was anything abnormal about just going out and starting a church without any connection to any other church in the world. Right? That's That's absolutely right. And didn't even cross my mind that there was anything wrong with that. But after pastoring for numerous years, I became so well aware of the need for some authority Mm -hmm. uh, other than my opinion or my interpretation of Scripture as pastor. Uh, For instance, I believe that marriage is a very sacred institution. And, you know, in in the Catholic Church, of course, it's a a sacrament. And but people would come to me that I'd never met before and wanted to get married in the church. And I'd start visiting with them and find out that they were living together, that they didn't have any church affiliation. <laughs> and I yeah. would very lovingly tell them that 
I believe marriage was a very sacred institution and not to be entered into lightly or unadvisedly, and that I couldn't marry them uh, unless they first of all separated, lived apart, (laughs) and uh, came to church for a year. Then I would marry them. Well, of course, nobody took me up on my offer. (laughs) So what would they do? They'd go across the street to another church where they'd get married. Yeah. And that just demonstrated to me the fact that there was no authority anymore in the church. And that's why you have 25,000 different, you know, church sects and, and institutions. And, and I thought, this isn't the way God intended it to be, you know? Mm-hmm. It, this can't be what God intended. So there has to be a true church somewhere. But it certainly couldn't be Catholic, I didn't yeah. think, <laughs> because they, they added all these things to the Bible. You know, they added the, the thing about the Pope and about Mary and about purgatory and, and you know, the feasts of, of the Annunciation and all these other things. That, these have all been added by the Church. And, of course, it says in Revelation in the last chapter that if you add anything uh, to the words of this book, God's going to take away, you know, his, your part from the book of life yep. and the holy city. And of course, I was taking that totally out of context. And um, so yep. how I, when I discovered 1 Timothy yep. three fourteen and 15, where it clearly states that it's the church that's the pillar and foundation of truth. It's not scripture alone. It's the church. If you had been asked the question, and, and this was the question that was posed to Scott Hahn and actually to me too, and if someone had come up to you during those 30 years and, and asked you what was the pillar and foundation of truth, would your knee-jerk reaction have been the Bible? Absolutely. The Bible, sola scriptura. I went to a good Lutheran college, and uh, you know we were taught that, that the, Bible, the Bible is it. And... Um, that's our foundation, and, and that's our truth. We just have to look to Scripture. Well, why, guy? I'm delaying you getting into this passage just for a second. I, I love this passage, but I'm trying to remember myself. Do you remember upon what authority you based this trustworthiness in this book published by Nor- uh, Doubleday or whatever? You know what I mean? This book you called the Bible. Why? Did you believe that to be the sole foundation for your whole life and your teaching and your preaching? Because that's what had been told me ever since I was young, mm-hmm. and I just accepted it as truth. I didn't question it. I uh, just accepted it. It's, a, it's kind of the same way as, you know, you grow up, and most people, if you grow up with Democratic parents, you become a Democrat. If you grow up with Republican parents, you usually become a Republican. Yeah. And you don't stop to say, well, why did my parents make this decision? Many times they didn't even really make the decision. They just grew into it because mm-hmm. it's what they grew up with. But um, I, for one, changed political parties when I started thinking and examining issues and found out that uh, the party that my mom and dad and grandpa and grandma were so involved in wasn't my party yeah. because it didn't espouse the, the beliefs and ideals that, that I had. Well, actually, just a put a comment on that, uh, one of the things that had changed, which maybe your parents didn't fully realize, is the party they'd been a part of had changed. That's correct. Underneath that, that was them. was the big thing. That was, 
That's very, very true. And so they have their loyalty to that party, even though the party has changed, which sadly a lot of Protestants still do today. Their denominations are teaching things differently today than they did 100 years ago, but yet there's loyalty there. That's right. You look, for instance, at the Episcopalian Church, which oh, yeah. just, uh, ordained its second you know, homosexual bishop, mm-hmm. and uh, the evangelical yeah. uh, Lutheran Church of America, which now allows gay clergy. And uh, that has caused some people in those denominations to say, that can't be my denomination anymore. And unfortunately, most people don't take enough time to really examine what they believe and why they believe it. They just accept it. And it, it becomes so essential, I think, to, to know why you believe yep. and, and, and what you believe. And, and that requires study, and it you know, requires prayer, and it requires direction. Um, and that's why uh, when I started getting into that, and, hey, you know, a lot of the things I believed weren't based in fact. Um, they just, I don't know why I believed them. <laughs> but when this passage hit you, that the pillar of foundation of truth is the church, and at the time, I'm assuming you were, what, you were evangelical free at the time? Is that right. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did... Would you, did you immediately therefore think, well, that must mean that the evangelical free church must be the pillar and foundation of truth? Did, 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 what, what do you understand by church? My church, and the irony of that is, is that, that <laughs> the church that I was pastoring, uh, we redid our, our bylaws and our constitution and our statement of belief, and I wrote most of it. <laughs> you know, and, oh, interesting. And so, you know, the, uh, what I've written is the pillar and foundation, or the bulwark of truth, you know, what Guy Dowd sat down and wrote. Uh, and how ironic that is, but that's exactly, so many of these churches that are popping up all over the place, that's exactly what they do. They write up their own set of, here's what we believe. Yeah. And they base it on their interpretation. You know, you compare that, like, for instance, here we live in the United States, and we have a constitution. What if we just handed the Constitution out to everybody and said, interpret it any way you want? Mm -hmm. You know, what chaos there would be. And that's why we have a Supreme Court that that rules in matters of constitutionality. In fact, I might just throw in this little comment that maybe that's part of the reason that right now we're facing so many crises in our culture is that people are ignoring the Constitution. They're looking for ways around it, way to uh, re-explain it, to reinterpret it, reapply it, based on ideologies, and, uh, and, and sometimes these ideologies even have influenced the court, the, the Supreme Court. And so, I mean, the, on the one hand, Guy, you and I both know that the analogy of the Constitution as a written document and the need for a Supreme Court is a good analogy of the need for a church in the Bible, but it's also why we can't just lean on any church. We need to make sure it's one that's been planted by Jesus and is guided by the Holy Spirit, which we can't, we can't assume that that's happening with the Supreme Court. <laughs> no, that, that's the big difference, is that the yep. Supreme Court is not uh, inspired by God. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, the definition of marriage is probably going to come up sometime, and, yep. and the Supreme Court will be influenced by um, the culture of the day. And uh, oftentimes, and that's, that's what's so sad, things that we once held dear 
and sacred beliefs, uh, given a cultural change and the, the the lack of morality, all of a sudden, you know, we uh, yeah. we have a new concept, and so it, it, that's that's what's different about you know the magisterium of the church is that we we just don't hold up a finger and change with the times. Uh, it's inspired by God and based on a long history of tradition. Now, when you were a pastor then, in fact, you were planting your own little churches. Mm-hmm. And you said, yeah, that, that church that you were planting or that you were pastoring there at the end, you had written your own rules, your own bylaws. <laughs> so, I mean, that the absurdity of that when you really think about it. But... But did you have a concept of a connectivity with any other Christians in the world? I mean, was there a wider view of church? Did, did you hold the invisible idea of a church at all? Yes, uh, of course we did. We, um, you know, assume the, the, the churches are the believers, and, and we believed that those believers are in every denomination. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find them. In, in, in any denomination, Catholic, uh, you know, Lutheran, Episcopalian, any Christian, we, you know, there were several things that were necessary. Who is Christ? You know, what do you believe about Scripture? And some, yep. of, you know, some of those basic things that we would have felt that everybody had to be in agreement on in order to be considered a part of the true church. But there are people, <laughs> given those standards, who would look at Catholicism and say Catholics aren't really Christians. Yeah. And there are a lot of Protestant people that believe that. Yeah. Now, when you encountered this passage, did I mean, did you think about whether that idea of an invisible church could therefore qualify as a pillar and bulwark of truth? No, I didn't. Uh, the invisible church is just yeah. far too invisible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It didn't have any uh, roots. I mean, it, all, of course, everything's rooted in Christ, but it was like, obviously, this verse was pointing to something far more substantial. Um, and But it, when I first read it, it didn't, it, you know, <laughs> Catholic church wasn't the church I thought of. Right. And um, I have to, you know, thank programs like Your Journey Home Program and Scott Hahn's uh, testimony uh, for enlightening me uh, about the truth of, uh, that the church, that's the pillar and foundation of truth, that's the church. And what was the church when Paul was writing to Timothy? What was the church? And that led me, of course, to study um, the early church fathers. and. Yep. Uh, and it just absolutely blew me away. You had not studied them when you were in your Lutheran college? No, not at all. Not not one bit. And, uh, and you know, I, I started out by saying, okay, if the pillar and foundation of truth is the church, and if that's possibly the Catholic church, I just, I, I have to prove that somehow. So yeah. I thought, well, what did the early church look like? And that leads you, of course, to going back and reading some of the writings of the early church fathers. What did that early church look like? What did they believe? And uh, obviously they believe in the fact that tradition is essential. That, and that brings us to our, the other verses that I selected there. 
and um, that just absolutely, I, I couldn't. I said, "Well, I got to prove prove the church wrong." And the first thing I wanted to prove wrong was that the early church leaders and fathers did not believe in the real presence in the Eucharist. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you you know you have Justin Martyr and all of them who are saying things like, "You know, this is." Uh, this is no common food. This is the body. This is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, being put to death, uh, martyred, because they were accused of being cannibals. Um, and so once you accept the fact that um, the church is the pillar and foundation of truth, that opens you up then to accept the teaching of the church, the early church, and accept the traditions. And that does away with the argument that the Catholics have added all of this stuff to the Bible. They, that stuff has been there since the beginning, and it's what the church is made of. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm trying to remember when I first started reading the Church Fathers, and I'm sure I didn't imagine this, but I assumed that I would find some kind of foundation for me to believe that the the, the sparks of Protestantism were there, my Congregationalism or Presbyterianism. And I either, I mean, it, it's almost, it's of course, jokingly to look at, imagine them in the early church renting out the Colosseum so an evangelist could come and speak and people would be invited down into the Colosseum to say the sinner's prayer. I mean, that's modern evangelicalism. Or that you would, uh, you know, have home Bible studies you know, individuals would just start Bible studies in their home, and each of those would be considered an individual church. I mean, that's happening everywhere today, but none of that was in the early church. You have bishops, priests, and deacons, and sacraments. You have churches. You have sacrificial worship. I mean, all of that was there, not just in the beginning, but as a continuity all the way to today. Guy, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Let's make sure we move on to 2 Thessalonians 2.15, because there's another word in that passage my guess is you didn't use very much when you were a Protestant minister. <laughs> we'll get back just a moment. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Guy Dowd, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Life on the Rock. With authentic masculinity under attack, how do men learn what it means to be a real man? Find out when John Bradford joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about wilderness outreach. That's on the next Life on the Rock here on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Guy Dowd, 
Our phone number, just in case you'd like to give us a call, 800-664-5110 or the regular Coming Home Network number, 740-450-1175 or you can send me an email at marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S at deepinscripture.com. Remind you, next week on Deep in Scripture, next Wednesday, same time, 2 Eastern time, uh, our guest will be Curtis Martin, the president and founder of Focus, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. He's a great friend and uh, and very entertaining. You'll enjoy his presence on Deep in Scriptures next Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time, as well as uh, uh, re-aired later in the evening. All right, Guy, let's, let's, if you would, let's move to 2 Thessalonians. Great passage. Uh, let me read it. Again, for our audience, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the, the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. I, I'm guessing there's at least one word in this passage you didn't use very much when you were Protestant. <laughs> tradition. In fact, uh, <laughs> we wanted to throw tradition out the window. Yeah. We had to make the church so that it was going to be appealing to this contemporary generation. And so, therefore, you kind of go along with uh, what other churches are doing to attract members. You get a big screen up in front, and you put the, you throw away the hymnal, and you throw away the pew, uh, get rid of the pews, and you get comfortable seats. And, uh, in fact, the deacons of our church went so far as to bring in sofas <laughs> and rocking chairs. <laughs> And, uh, you know, you have to have the coffee bar. And so you do anything you can. You, you don't call it a church anymore. In fact, ironically, they, they called it the journey. And um, I'll tell you what, there's a few churches that I'm sure would not go for putting sofas in their sanctuary just because they wouldn't last through the sermon, right? I mean, <laughs> People would be sleeping. <laughs> snoring, too, especially through mine, probably. <laughs> Yeah, the, so the, the tradition, you know, it, yeah. we did everything we could to thumb our nose at tradition and didn't uh, embrace the, the marvelous part that tradition should play in what we believe and in how we worship. You know, the average uh, Protestant service today is centered around the singing and the pastor preaching. And the Catholic worship service, of course, is the same way now as it was in the beginning. It's centered around the, the liturgy of the Word and, or the, and the Eucharist. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the beauty of it. Well, I'm just curious, when you were a pastor, uh, did you see this first? I mean, did you explain it away, or did you just ignore it? Just pretty much didn't, under, didn't uh, acknowledge it. I yeah. mean... You know, you could say, well, what Paul's talking about here is that you, you, you kept, uh, you maintained your belief mm-hmm. in Christ as the Son of God and His resurrection and you know His death on the cross and His resurrection and they, that's what he's talking about. Now, when and you I, when you were a pastor, which translation of the Bible did you use? Uh, use the uh, Revised Standard Version or the American Standard. Okay, yeah, and both of them. Uh, in fact, the one that I use myself always right now is the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, which just has a few corrections, but it's it's a, you know a fine translation. It's a good balance between literal as well as uh, you know uh, uh, you know making the, the language speak to today. But it's a good balance between that New American Bible. It was like the answer book to the Hebrew Old Testament when I took Hebrew. But um, 
What I didn't know you noticed, and I thought I'd mention for the audience, that there's a, a translation that's extremely uh, popular amongst Protestants, and that's the New International Version. Mm-hmm. And uh, became very popular uh, in the uh, in the time during when I was in seminary, which would have been the late 70s and early 80s, and then on, and it became the major book. And I've come to consider that translation very disingenuous because... I don't know if you notice this guy, but in this passage, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the. In that translation, whenever the word tradition applies as something good, the word is changed to teachings. Mm. Whenever the word tradition is used to something bad, like don't, you know, avoid the traditions of men, well, then they use the word tradition. And so the committee that did the NIV, I think, in a very disingenuous way, tried to avoid the use of the word tradition in any positive sense, particularly because of what you're talking about. Your background avoids the use of the word tradition. Hmm. That's really interesting. So you could have gotten by in this passage if you were using NIV, because it would have said, stand, fo- stand firm and hold to the teachings, which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. That translation would not have caused a problem. Hmm. But it's the word tradition in the Greek. That's what's there, as you pointed out. What about the, the phrase, either by word of mouth or by letter? That, that is so important. Um, you know, we, the sola scriptura folks, of which I used to be one of, uh, you know, everything is by letter or by scripture. Yep. But Paul makes it very clear here that some of the teachings have just been passed down by word of mouth. Um, and... Those are an important part of the tradition as much as the written word is. And um, when you stop to consider that, even the Protestants, um, you know, they have a lot of traditions that they they still do hold to. For instance, the teaching about the Trinity. Uh, You're not going to find the word the Trinity in Scripture, but it's been the tradition from the get-go that, you know, that, that was uh, an established doctrine of the church. But <laughs> I, they can accept that doctrine, but then, you know, for instance, the um, admiration for Mary and other things, which are also part of the traditions, um, somehow or other they came to leave those out. You know, in, in another tradition which Protestants uh, take for granted, and that's worshiping on Sunday mornings, um, and in that sense, our Seventh-day Adventist brothers and sisters actually have it right, because if you're going to deny the authority of a church to have the authority to make the change of day uh, from Saturday to Sunday, then you ought to be worshiping when the Jewish worshiped on Saturday, the Sabbath. That's a good point. But all Protestants just assume Sunday, but are ignorant of how that came about under the authority of the early bishops uh, as the church moved from Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, to the Lord's Day, the Day of the Resurrection on Sunday. And the Trinity is another great example. You, you pointed out that, you know, you throw away those councils. And, of course, as, as you mentioned, you know, those councils that, that decided the Trinity decided a couple bunch of other things that Protestants ignore. Um, where was Mary in your journey before you ever considered the Catholic Church? 
uh, somebody that we had to cast in the Christmas pageant. (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, Who wanted to be Mary? Uh, You know, I would occasionally, when I started listening to EWTN and and the rosary and uh i just i was amazed that people would say this repetitive prayer uh you know to mary uh him and then you know that's another verse i kind of overlooked you know and uh uh, it's right from scripture you know yeah uh hail mary full of grace you know Mm -hmm. um and so she was a nice lady i believed in her perpetual virginity um, even Luther and Calvin believed that, you know. Um, but in terms of praying to her, I, I couldn't see that. And, uh, and but then you go back, you know, if you buy this idea, and it's no, it's nothing you need to buy because it's true. But if you accept the fact that tradition is so essential, it's a, plays as, as essential a role as the scripture itself does. Then you go back and you find that. Very, very early on, there was this reverence for Mary. Yeah. And that's part of the tradition. Yep. In fact, when you were doing your search of the early church fathers, you would have bumped into it a lot. And uh, you can't, can't deny the reality of that. The other thing that I found in these passages, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you did too, Guy, I'd like you to talk about, though, that the subtle part of all three of these sections that you've talked about is it, it demonstrates that Paul recognizes that these Christians had already received the truth through oral teaching and that the only reason he's writing letters to them is because he can't get there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it implies that the normal way of delivering the truth was the oral teaching, not the written. Did you discover that in your journey? Was that something that struck you as significant? Yes, it really did. And I think that, you know, that second Thessalonians verse there points that out so well, that you've held to the, to the traditions that you've been, you know, taught either by word of mouth or by letter. And quite frankly, most of them were probably taught most of the traditions by word of mouth. Yep. Well, let's take another break, if we would. And then let's come back and we'll look at that 1 Corinthians 11 passage, which kind of connects with everything we've said. And then I'd like us to to discuss, well, what difference does it make for our audience listening, especially if if some of those in our audience? I mean, are we saying that the Bible isn't trustworthy? Let's look at that when we get back. You're listening to Deep in History, Deep in Scripture, excuse me. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined today by Guy Dowd. And you're hearing us on EWTN, Global Catholic Radio Network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. 
Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. We're joined by Guy Dowd today, and he's looking at a number of passages which I really believe are are strong passages. And, and I don't know that I've ever heard... Uh, Guy, have you? Have you ever heard a Protestant give a good explanation of these that would counter our Catholic understanding of them? No. No, in fact, when I uh, sit down and point these verses out to... Um, my dear brothers in the Protestant faith, uh, they don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. They're kind of dumbfounded. Yeah, and it's, it, you know, it's amazing in that sense because they believe in the infallibility of Scripture. In fact, many of them be, believe in what's called the perspicuity of Scripture. In other words, it clearly explains itself. And uh, so what do you do with these passages? What about 1 Corinthians eleven two? Let me read that again and... I'd like to know what you did with this when you were a Protestant minister. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. Well, you know, a moment ago you mentioned that the NIV translates that in and says teaching. Yep. And I think that's the way I kind of looked at it, that mm-hmm. Paul was telling them thanks for keeping the teachings or the, you know, maintaining the truth. And uh, I didn't think of it in tradition as a you know, as as we now look at it from our Catholic perspective. But obviously, when you go back and you study it, that's what it does mean. Yep. He's talking about all the traditions, how the worship service is conducted. I mean, that goes back to uh, the verse from First Timothy, you know, so that one might know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church, the pillar and foundation of truth. And the way they know how to do that is because they maintain the traditions that have been passed to them, either by word of mouth or by letter. And like we just mentioned, obviously, most of that has been passed to them through the teaching, oral teaching. Mm-hmm. I mean, it never crossed their mind that... Uh, that that it would move into a sola scriptura perspective. There's no evidence that it would even cross there might be possible that Christianity would become something that is all based on just a book um, as as the sole foundation for everything. Because, you know, for those first, at least for those first couple hundred years, there was no Bible put together. You know, I'm sure there's somebody listening right now, Marcus, who is saying uh, that by saying that, we somehow are devaluing Scripture. And that's not the case at all. Right. Um, but Scripture alone, it, the Bible doesn't support that. Uh, as you mentioned, there were hundreds of years when we didn't even have the Bible, and we wouldn't have the Bible if it hadn't been for the traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, the, the councils that got together and prayerfully considered, and they based their decisions on the teachings that had been handed down to them throughout the years and, and their belief system and what they held sacred and what they held dear. And so we really wouldn't even have the Bible if it weren't for tradition. One of the earliest um, Latin teachers of the church, Tertullian, uh, when when he and others in the early church were confronted by alternative teachings and there was a debate trying to figure out which slant on a doctrine was true or false, their answer was not 
let's open the Bible and see what the Bible says. Their answer is, can they trace the teaching back to a church of an apostle? Mm. That was the foundation. In other words, was it, was it a clear expression of the tradition of the deposit of faith that we've received from the apostles? And if anyone were to go, you can get it online, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and you go to the opening paragraph uh, that was penned by Pope John Paul II, and the very first line, he defines the purpose of the church as guarding the deposit mm. of faith. That's what it's here for. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you, the audacity of you, Guy, felt that you had the right to just write it all from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> but that's happening every day. We have two or three new churches uh, pop up, you know, come in blue jeans, preferred, or sh- uh, cut off shorts, you know, and and uh, we serve Starbucks, and uh, <laughs> that's so sad. <laughs> yeah. Missing yeah. out on, on the, the long history of, uh, of the tradition, uh, to think that, you know, the early worship service, uh, you know, in St. Ignatius's letter to the Romans, uh, he, you know, described what the worship service looked like. It had scripture reading, psalms and hymns, the people's amens, prescribed prayers, and a homily or an exposition, the confession of faith, almsgiving, the Lord's Supper, and prayer of consecration, the Lord's Prayer, the kiss of peace. Yeah. And what is that? <laughs> you know, that's the Mass. Yeah. And that's the way the early church service was. And when I go to Mass, that strikes me, is that we're, we're worshiping in the... You know, we, um, one of the churches that I, I planted, uh, the whole idea was we wanted to uh, return to the type of fellowship they had in the early church. Yep. <laughs> and the irony of that is that, that we thought that meant just doing away with the liturgy, and, and, and of course it's just the opposite. And uh, people, uh, you know, I, came, I grew up in a church, a congregational church that, you know, we had uh, liturgy, uh, not a real extensive liturgy, but we always said, you know, the affirmation of faith and the Gloria Patri and, and all of those kinds of things and the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. And, but today, the average Protestant service doesn't include any of those things. And, uh, In fact, you mentioned Congregationalism. That's what I was originally ordained as a Congregationalist. And a part of my ordination by my denomination, or it wasn't an association, a national association of Congregational Christian churches, and but to be ordained in that association, one of the first things I had to do was to write my statement of faith. In other words, I couldn't just write down the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. I had to express it in my own words, what I believe. So if they ordained 30 people, 50 people, 100 people, there had to be 30, 50, 100 different individualistic personal expressions of what it means to be a Christian. And that, that was required by the association to be ordained in it. So even the, the association itself required this individualistic Narcissism. You know, every individual is their own pope, and these are the pastors that they're they're sending out there. And uh, um, I mean, I, one of the reasons I actually made the journey from Congregationalism to Presbyterianism was the craziness of every individual church deciding what it wants to believe. At least I wanted some connection with creeds and 
and rules of order and such. And I saw that in Presbyterianism. But then, of course, Presbyterians have divided all over the place with nine different denominations. Mm-hmm. Guy, let me ask you, let's say, just assume for a second that there's somebody out there listening to our program that right now is just where you were, and they believe Scripture the way you did, and they're hearing us talk about what we're talking. What do you think you would have been thinking, and what would you like to say to them about that? Well, uh, you're on the right path. Uh, Allow yourself to think. Allow yourself to question what you've believed all your life. Be open for the possibility that there is is truth in what we're saying. At least be open for that possibility. Spend a, a good deal of time with God in prayer. Read, um, you know, find out for yourself what you believe and why you believe it. Um, And, uh, you know, just be open to the possibility and ask God to really show you the truth. I mean, I was so vehement at first, Marcus, that, I mean, there was no way I thought I could ever, ever become a Catholic because I couldn't buy into all these other teachings. And, but then when I discovered the truth about the real presence, and then I, had, uh, I really understood the truth about the fact that traditions play as large a role in the faith as, do, as does Scripture. And when I discovered that the Church is the pillar and foundation of truth, not the Bible, uh, then that opened me up to understand, you know, that the teachings, of, for instance, of Mary, you know, uh, the, the part that Mary plays in our faith, uh, you know, Augustine writing uh, about the heretics who contradict the p- perpetual virginity of Mary, and, um, you know, uh, Gregory writing about the, the Feast of the Annunciation and in the year 262. The, the, you know, I started opening myself up to this as a fact. These early church fathers wrote about this, that, you know, the Feast of the Annunciation has been there since the beginning. You know, it's part of our tradition. And allow yourself to be open and ask God to show you the truth. You know, Guy, I wanted to make sure I mentioned this as before we close, and that, again, you on the... On the Deep in Scripture website, for those of you that are on the journey, even thinking, there's a ton of stuff on the Deep in Scripture website that links you to the Coming Home Network. So we've got books and tapes and stuff that will help you in your journey, because that's what we're here for. But also there's a link to your website, Guy, and, and you, as a motivational speaker, are often speaking in secular settings, right? That's correct, uh, most of the time. Are you able to bring out your faith in today's secular world? Yes, um, I don't always hit people over the head with it, you know. Uh, I, uh, you know, like uh, St. Francis said, you know, to, uh, you know, witness, 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 and preach, 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 and if necessary, use words. Yeah, right. (laughs) But um, it's always very evident. And then I've been getting a lot of opportunities to speak, like, at Catholic men's conferences, Uh events like that, and I find those such a blessing. Well, I, uh, you know, the... The best witness, as you've said, is our lives. Some people need to know why we live the way we live, and that's when maybe we talk about Jesus Christ or the church. But I I do have to make a comment, and then I'd love your thought, that it isn't that we have any less view of Scripture now that we're Catholic. It's, in fact, the complete opposite, that I actually enjoy the reading and praying of Scripture now more than I ever did. Because one of the reasons is it's not left up to me to determine whether some difficult passages, what do they mean, how they apply. 
uh, do I, whether I ignore them because I recognize it's a part of a bigger tradition that I can trust. Isn't that the truth? I mean, um, I kind of liken it to playing tennis. You know, without, somebody, without the net and without the lines, playing tennis would be uh, just the most horrible experience in yep. the world. I mean, if you were on a tennis court and there was no net and there were no lines, no inbounds, no out-of-bounds, and you just tried to hit the ball back and forth to each other, you'd go crazy. Yeah, it'd uh, certainly be a different game, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and that's, in a sense, what the church is like without uh, the authority, uh, without the, the bishops and the authority, and without somebody who tells you that this is the way, this is what this scripture means. And it takes so much pressure off you. You know how to stay within the bounds, so to speak, and what's required of you. And, of course, what's required of us is, is our all, but um, you just can't hit the ball wherever you want to hit it. Yeah, and, and maybe we should make an, a, a little apology to our audience because this is true of the church. And you, Guy, and, and me, we're called to live by that. Sadly, there are Catholics out there that don't live by the teaching of the church, and, and their witness is not a strong message of the truth of the church. You know, we got Catholic, so-called Catholic politicians that are voting on ways that are against the teaching of the church. But so we ask God's forgiveness for that. But we ask our audience to really look at the church and the beauty of the church and the way the Holy Spirit has guided and protected that truth all these years. Uh, are you happy you came home, Guy? Uh, most one of the most important decisions I've ever made, if not the most, because you know people say, "Well, you Catholics, do you believe in accepting Christ as your Savior?" And I say, <laughs> "Yep, I do it every every day at Mass." Yeah. You know, when you go forward and you partake of His body and of His blood, you know you're accepting Christ as your Savior, and uh, and so it's I, I like it's it's. You know, just been an unbelievable decision for me. I had somebody call me this morning, an old friend uh, who used to be in the church, one of the churches I pastored. He says, you're not still a Catholic, are you? <laughs> and uh, I think he was thinking that maybe, you know, I was just going to jump from church to church to church or that I, I made this decision on a whim to become Catholic. And, of course, it, it was a many-year period or yeah. process not just a phase we've uh, we've arrived at the church that jesus established guy thank you so much for joining us on deep in scripture it's been my uh, pleasure marcus all right i'll talk to you soon and the rest of you listening thank you so much i hope it's been encouragement to you god bless you see you next week